Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible show. And today I am meeting with a good friend of mine, Ray Hauk. And, you know, what's interesting is I've known Ray for quite a few years, actually. And a lot of you know that I teach spin classes is sort of a hobby. And we met, he was a student in my spin class for several years before I even knew that he was a a Navy chaplain, but he is, and he's going to talk about that experience today. And he's going to be talking about his experiences um, in the addiction field, because he has a lot of experience there and working in the VA and some other areas. And his wife is a counselor as well. And we're going to be talking about spirituality and religion and how that relates to recovery, because I tell you what, that's a big question that's usually at the top of the list when i when i work with a patient now is this idea of are you telling me i'm going to have to believe in god i'm not going to believe in god i've got problems with the church i'm angry at the church i'm angry angry at god you name it we hear it all and that becomes a barrier for people when we look at recovery and ray and i are going to be breaking that down here today and talking about what what are we really talking about and why is it important to have developed a spiritual program that you can work with in order for you to get into long-term recovery because after all that's hopefully the goal if you're someone that's listening to this program right now that either you or someone you know may need to get into long-term recovery And what you're going to find, and I've often said this, is that people, like if you look at the recovery population, the people that continue to relapse or never get well tend to do certain things. But the people that get well also tend to do certain things. And having a a spiritual program tends to be one of those many things that they do. But what does that mean? What does it mean for you? And how can we get through this whole subject uh, without getting angry, getting sad, uh, becoming defensive? I don't know. For some reason, this is a hot topic and a hot button issue with people. And we're going to discuss that. But first, I want to introduce you to Ray. And he's going to tell you a little bit about his background. And then uh, we'll get into it from there. So Ray, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, delighted to be here with you. I'm Bray Houck. Um, I just retired from the Navy after 41 years of service, both enlisted as an enlisted Marine and then later on as a chaplain. And delighted to be with you. I'm part of my training, and about 10 years of it has been in Navy medicine, both formally and informally, uh, serving Navy and Marine Corps, as well as working with wounded warriors. And part of that is recovery, because we all know that part of taking the pain away from some of the the things that people go through is people have a tendency to use substances and then get hooked and then and then abuse them of course that can go all the way there's a myriad of reasons why people do that but setting those reasons aside people want to get better i really believe that people want to be a better version of themselves now than when they were when they were using for so for those of your listeners who may be struggling with it you know, as recovery is possible, as the name of this podcast is, uh, you know, spirituality and, and the religious practices, particularly the disciplines of spiritual disciplines, the disciplines that come from uh, various types of religious practices have a lot of societal norms, which we can talk about. But having that community of faith that's so supportive, that understands, that really attends to where you're at in recovery process can be a great tool for you. So I worked for six months at the Veterans Administration uh, when I was going through a clinical pastoral education assigned to Portsmouth Naval Medical Center. And then I also worked in uh, 
the substance abuse rehab program at Portsmouth and their in their outpatient program, but all the way through my bumps and bruises through the military and the opportunities I've had to work with Navy and Marines, both deployed and home port, you know, substance abuse was always, always a looming issue in the background. It's something I always confronted, always asked about, and then spouses also uh, of, of military service members, men, both male and women, female spouses, certainly confronted those issues as, as addiction is a family problem. Yeah, it really is. And even as a minister now, addic- addiction, let me ask you this, because I, I ask people this all the time when I go out and I speak in the public, and I, I kind of discovered this by accident. It's not something that I consciously thought about, but when I go before groups, and I'll be speaking to a group tonight, and I will start off by asking how many people in the room know of someone in their life that has an addiction issue. And I, do you know that I've never met anyone that doesn't know someone with an addiction issue? Not one. Not one. Did you find that in the military? Oh, Yes. A lot of yeah. people join the military to do something positive, to make some positive changes, to maybe change their people, places, and things, to really get some knowledge, skills, and abilities in their life. And then also, sometimes they join to run away from something that's been harmful, a childhood experience, perhaps an abusive situation in one form or another. But they carry those isms, if you would, with them into their new life. And if they're not confronted, changing people, places, and things won't help if they don't, at the root of themselves, want to change. And a lot of times, people want to change, but they they don't know how. And they're not willing to really just submit to the process of change, that uh, faith, that transformation, that accountability can bring to someone's life, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it really does. And I really like what you just said there, that they will not submit themselves to the process of, of change. You know, I know now in the work that I do, and I work at a, at a major hospital, and we I've had patients come through our unit that have been to detox 50, 5-0, 50 times. Not uncommon to have somebody 20 plus times go through it. They, they can quote the big book to you. They can, uh, when I do the physiological lectures on addiction, some of them could actually get up and teach the class that I'm teaching. I believe it. But yet they keep coming back and back and back. Mm-hmm. And my only conclusion to that is you you know what to do, right? There's a difference between knowing what to do and doing it. And that goes back to what you're talking about. That is submitting yourself to the process. And, and that starts with having made a decision to do that. You either, you know, and you and I were talking before we came on the, on the program here. And that is that, you know, I don't think that they understand that you, you either deal with addiction or it's going to deal with you. But... However way you want to do it, you're going to have to confront the issue Oh yeah, one way or the other. But our goal is to get them to confront that issue earlier. But there's a stubbornness to, that people have. And, and maybe it's the ego. Maybe it's um, self-centeredness. You know, I, you have extensive experience in this, not just with addiction, but even um, just in, in pastoral care and whatnot. I mean, what are, what are you seeing with people from your perspective and I have my theories, but I want to get your, your thoughts on this. So what's your perspective on what's going on there? What is it about somebody that would bring them to detox 50 times, but yet not follow the instructions for aftercare in order to do what they need to do to get well? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, we have to understand that substances dull pain. It works. So, so you're either ending up with somebody, you know, you've got one of three choices when you bump up against something. 
and, and, and you're in pain is one, you go to the ER and hope you find somebody who has some compassion on you and will get you to the right person who can really be of some accountability and some help and you can start to get in a program or, uh, or two, you know, you spend 10 bucks and get a pill or you spend 10 bucks and get another bottle and you, and that pain can go away rather quickly and easily. The problem is you're only offsetting the invitability of that pain coming back. You're really not solving anything. Mm -hmm. And so to your question specifically, I think it's, it's, it's that innate principle of pride of, I don't want to lose control of myself, but it's a lie because alcohol, drugs, substances, they make you lose control of yourself. I mean, we, you know, I mean, look at, maybe don't look at YouTube, but, <laughs> you know, look at various social media about all the funny things that people do when they're under the influence of substances. So who rules your life? If, if you're giving, if you're willfully giving your control of your life over to a substance, you're going to do certain things. If you're willfully giving control of your life to a higher benevolent power, then you're going to have a different type of life. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you know, people will come in to the treatment center and they'll say, I can't believe in a God. Can't believe in a God. And what I tell, and, and if you're listening to this and you're struggling right now, and, and I'm talking to you, and you're saying, yep, yep, I can't believe in a God. I can't believe in that quote-unquote higher power. What I'm going to say to you is that I, I'm going to call you out on that, and I'm going to tell you that you really don't, you don't have a problem with following a higher power. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you think about it, if you're somebody, I'll just take drinking, for example. You have no problem in following that God, that power. Because if you're honest, if, if you got to the point where you're listening to this program because you feel like you need to listen to this program, your, your bottle, your drinking tells you where to go, when to go, who to go with, whether you're going to go at all. Um, uh, check out where, you know, making sure that you're prepared when you get to where you go that you can drink. If, if you if you think about all these different things, it tells you exactly what to do and when to do it and who to do it with. That's a God. And you, you've worshipped at it for years, and you are a faithful and obedient servant to your God. All we are saying in recovery is maybe you need to replace that God with something else. Now, if it bothers you to use the term God, um, do whatever you want to do. But the, the, the experience that we have is that you have to have something in your life that is greater than you. And maybe look at this as being baby steps, but maybe it's a purpose. Maybe it's uh, being part of an organization. Maybe it's service to others, which is the classic AA way and NA way of mm-hmm. dealing with things. And that is is a being of service to other people and helping the next person, the next person who is suffering. Because we know that as long as I'm trying to help the next person, I tend not to be up in my own head and think about the things that are going on with me. Now, in time, what people find is that their idea of spirituality grows grows from there. It may not be uh, a, a transformation overnight and immediately. It can be. You know, people have that. But for a lot of people, it's sort of like just getting through that that initial physiological pull of the drink and, and drugs and sort of almost like a, a slow awakening of your, your own existence and your own purpose and your yeah. own spirituality. Well, we all know that yeah. people stop developing 
emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, when they start using a substance. Yeah. So yep. they just stop, whether they're 12 years old or 15 years old or 17 or 27, they just stop developing. And that is true with their spirituality as well as their intellect and their emotions and, and their willpower. So it, it's really important. So I just want to give you a working definition. This comes from, there are many definitions of spirituality, but this is a good uh, working definition of, of spirituality, which comes from uh, Lisa Miller, who's a professor of psychology and education and the director of the clinical psychology program at Teachers College in Columbia University. And I'm reading the book from the book, uh, The Spiritual Child, The New Science of Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. And she does, you know, it is concerned about lifelong thriving because she does talk about young adults and the development of spirituality. So she defines spirituality, uh, and this is on page 25 of this particular edition that I'm looking at. Spirituality is an inner sense or relationship to a higher power that is loving and guiding. And those last two words are really important, loving and guiding, because we all know that there's, and, and it's been argued, there, there are you know harmful religions out there that really control people, that pull people away from uh, relationships with others. And that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a loving and guiding daily presence that people can tap into. Uh, for me, that's my relationship with Jesus Christ and my church group, which is supportive of, of who I am and, and, and who I'm becoming. But they're interested in the spiritual journey of that. And, and the important point is that spirituality encompasses our relationship and dialogue with this higher presence, however you define that. Um, and, and I think that's really important because it's a general working of spirituality. And a lot of times the, the classic spiritual disciplines of ancient religions of various types have built into their structures uh, patterns of worship, patterns of getting together, patterns of prayer that can really help uh, people, especially younger people, develop that sense of of the divine in their life that is guiding and loving and that is not abusive and does not really take uh, take from people, but gives people, infuses their hearts with that type of spirituality because you can miss God by 18 inches. I mean, what by that I mean the distance between your head and your heart uh, because you because people have a tendency, especially in our culture today, to intellectualize religion and faith and point out all the strategic bad things that religion has done through the centuries. And I don't argue with any of those bad things because people are sinful and people can be involved in religious practices that are harmful. So setting that aside, overall, I think religious and religious faith can provide community, can provide support, can provide guidelines, such as don't lie. Uh, from which we get our, you know, when you go buy something from the store, if it's not what you think it should be, you can return it. You know, all, all those business practices that are based upon truth and justice and the confidence that we have in, in one another. Um, and those one another's are found all through Christian scripture, and, but are also supported in other faith groups as well. Uh, and a lot of the growing part of of movements are the the nuns i don't i don't believe in any religion i believe in sort of god out there somewhere uh okay that's fine because even if you don't believe in 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 a god concept that doesn't mean that it's not there and it doesn't mean that god however you define that doesn't believe in you and so in the recovery process faith can be really crucial to saying i i can change God does believe in me. 
God does care about me. There is a benevolent force in the universe, which you know I believe personally is 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 that God concept to move to that next level. And so when you're alone in the dark of the night making these decisions about what you're going to do or what you're not going to do, then you've got some resource there that is spiritual, that is deep, that you can develop, that you can tack on to. Yeah, and I think that's important. And I'll, I'll just share with you a, a story that I talked about a long time ago, and I was thinking about it recently, that, you know, it's important, th- this benevolent God, you know, it, omnipotent presence. It's important to understand, because I remember I was probably about six years into recovery, around that that point. And uh, where I was working, we went overseas, and we were doing some training with uh, the Polish police. And actually, some uh, agencies, uh, different European agencies, but we were in Poland. And I remember being in Warsaw, Poland, and there was more alcohol probably than water anywhere. And the group that I was traveling with, you know, of course, that was not uncommon where I worked. You know, a lot of alcohol when you're on the road. And uh, the people were saying, hey, come on down, let's let's go out, let's do this, let's do that. And so here I am, that, that part, that addicted part of your brain says, well, you know, I'm in Europe, Eastern Europe. Nobody will know. Um, I can just drink while I'm here and I'll go back home and, and who would know the difference? And there were a few things, Ray, that, that hit me and, and kept me from drinking. And it was, one was this, and that was sort of that, remember, we're, you know, addiction is isolation and recovery is community. And by this point, six years in, um, I had started, uh, I founded an AA meeting at the church that I go to. Um, it's not affiliated with the church. It just happens to be in the church. But I'm there, and, and, and they, those those people kind of look at me a, a certain way. They look at me as almost like the, the the leader of the group, even though there are no leaders in AA. But, but you know, I founded the meeting. So people, kind of, but they kind of look to me, right, for some some guidance when it comes to reco- newer people in recovery kind of looking to me is, is that example. And I'm sponsoring other men, right? So they definitely look at me as someone that is sort of their mentor, so to speak. And um, and I knew that I was coming up that summer in another, I think that was going to be the seventh year. So I'd pick up that seven-year chip. And it, so it hit me that when I was there that I, I was confronted with sort of a, a moral dilemma. I really wanted to drink but I would have to go back to the United States and face these people and look them in the eye and say, hey, thank you for giving me this seven-year chip, knowing that I drank when I was in Europe. But more importantly, to go to your point, there was one other thing. Because when I thought to myself, who would know? Who would know that I, that I drank over here? And it hit me that God would know. And I had suffered so much pain leading into recovery that I began to fear what would happen if I started drinking again? Because it was almost like I was saying, you know, thinking to myself, uh, because I do believe that there was a divine power that brought me into recovery. And it was, it was if, look, if that didn't hurt, if that wasn't painful enough, watch out now. If you want to suffer pain, this will be pain. And the fear of what those consequences would be of me drinking outweighed the desire to drink. And the good news is I didn't drink and came back to the States uh, unscathed. But that, that idea of having commitment and responsibilities to other human beings and then being concerned about my higher power, how the consequences of that outweighed that desire to drink and it made it through. And I'm at 11 years now, so uh, or close to 11 years. So it bought me, but that was almost, that, that was you mean a it's not all about moment. you? Huh? You mean it's not all about you? No. Well, that's what you learn in recovery. <laughs> exactly. But in, in addiction, though, it is about us. 
in recovery, it becomes about others because yes. I really felt responsible. In a way, I mm-hmm. felt an obligation and a duty to the men that I was sponsoring and the people in that meeting to carry through. Because who am I to come back to the United States and talk to you about how you can work your pro- program of, reco- of recovery when I'm not doing those things? That changes how you think, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, and, and you know... I- I don't know about where you, where you work now or your experience, but in, in my experience working at that facility I was working at for, for, for six months, you know, I, I had, I was doing spiritual evaluations on patients and it happened to be in the VA system, but it really could be any, any system at all. And those patients who were successful had some type of background from their childhood that they could lean on, some type of, of, of prayer system, some type of program in spiritual development that they could restart or rekindle or adjust in some way because i mean some of us start off in one path and you know can adjust to another but still keep making progress in in the development of our of our hearts and minds and i think um and and so i I had a, a senior chaplain pull me aside and 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 we were talking about this phenomenon and he goes he goes well you know a lot of the and and it was happened to be mostly men uh, going through the program uh, down down where we were, said basically, you know, they're just coming in here for 28 days and they're going to leave here. You'll notice when it's cold out, they'll check in. Then they'll stay here for 28 days because it's free. Uh, and it should be free, I think. I, I, I think our, our government does a good job with that uh, as far as taking better, taking better care of our veterans, but that's a whole different subject. And And the sense of they're going to hit the street and they're going to go out because they've been clean for a while. They're going to get a cheaper high. Now that's, that's cynicism, but it's true. And so I think to your point earlier of the difference between somebody who really wants to make a radical. And by that time I'm by the, I'm using the word radical in its mathematical sense of to the root change can, can change direction. You know, when you, when you start off on a course and you're on a ship or you're, you're flying to a destination, you know, if you're just a half a degree off at the beginning of that, you're going to end up in some other place by the time you finish your long journey. And I think to come back to the route and to adjust that just a little bit and to say, you know, I'm willing to consider my faith. I'm willing to consider religion as part of my recovery process. I'm willing to consider that to, to make that step could adjust that course enough to make a difference in your life and actually save your life and save the life of your family. Cause you're right. It's not all about you. Mm-hmm. And, and so many times and uh, down there, I would talk to people and they're disconnected. They're dis- their family won't return their phone calls. They've stolen every penny they could get their hand on from everybody who, who they know. And they're all, they're, they're totally frozen out of all those relationships that could be supportive and helpful to their recovery process. And they're so alone. They're so alone and so desperate. And so the Lord is that, that one who could really be there for them at that time. Just consider that change. Yeah, I, I really like that. The, the small changes in the beginning. And for most people, recovery starts with small changes. There are those people that have that bright light moment and they go to their first meeting or they go to their first counseling session. 
uh, or they go to the treatment for the first time and they've they got it. It was magical. There are those people. They are not the they are not the majority by any stretch of the imagination. For for many people, and I think that that was true of me. It was really just sort of small changes. It was the incremental changes. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. it's you fall backwards, but mm-hmm. you just got to. Honesty is a practice. Mm-hmm. Being honest with yourself, being honest with those who are around you. So, and that truth, you know, the truth will set you free, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the FBI or the CIA building, you know, but the truth mm-hmm. will set you free. But it's in scripture also. And sometimes we do take, you know, one or two, three steps forward, and then we slip back. And then we say, okay, recalibrate, you know, get back on, get back in the program. No shame, no guilt, just start again. And you, you may not have to go all the way back to zero, but you may have to go back a couple steps and to, to make some more progress and to clean up the pathway, if you would. Yeah, and, and you know, work. that's a good point, it's work. too. And you got to work the program. There are people that come into to treatment, and we hear this. In fact, I hear this all the time because it's where I work at. I'm in a, I'm in a detox center, so it's not uncommon for somebody to come in and they're with us usually five to seven days with us. Then they get released. And I have literally. So I I work four days on and I'm off three days. And it's not uncommon for me to see a patient up through that last, you know, that fourth day. And then I'll come in the next week and I'll be, oh, you're still here. They're like, no, I've left and I've come back. I mean, they've they've come back that quickly. And what I hear right off the bat is, oh, Mike, I I screwed up. I screwed up. And I always tell them, no, you didn't screw up because you're back here. Yeah. You're back here. Yeah. And, and maybe address that a little bit because you talked about moving forward and moving back. Mm-hmm. Folks, and if you're listening to us and you, you are trying to get into recovery, it really isn't about how many times you try as long as you're still, listen, you're still in the fight. It's when you give up. That's the problem. Now, we are going to try to work on getting the message to you. Don't get me wrong. But you know what? Even that, that person that's been to treatment 50 times, you know what? You're still coming back. Yeah, there's I always mean, hope. I, I was yeah. at I worked at a church in Los Angeles for a number of years, going through college and seminary and youth pastor and clean the toilets and you just do whatever you need to do. And but it's really developing a servant's heart to humility. But I remember one particular time we had this gentleman come in and he was in a recovery program. He had just started uh, his his life was starting to go a bit better. He was involved in, in church and starting to connect with people. Uh, and he had uh, I'm not sure if he was formally married, but it was his 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 other half, if you would, um, was sadly killed in a car accident. It was sudden. It was, it was, it was bad. And he had just given his life to Christ and just made a commitment and was living out his recovery program using these tools. And he came in and the senior pastor wasn't there. So here I am like 22 year old youth pastor, didn't know too much. And he starts yelling at me like, just walked in the church office and was really angry and why would God do this and God let me down and God isn't real and all this stuff and and I looked at him and I, it must have been some type of shock of inspiration or something but it wasn't me and I said you're here you're here in this church office talking to me and yelling at God which is probably a pretty healthy thing to do at this point I'd probably be doing the same thing I didn't mm-hmm. use all these words with him but I let him go for a while and I and I said, I can't uh, tell you how much it means to me that you came here instead of crawled back into a bottle again. Mm. You're here. And we were able to support him and help him and cry with him. Mm-hmm. And it made a huge difference in his life. Yeah. And I, I, 
you know, I lost touch with him after a couple of years, but for that season of life, we were there for him mm-hmm. because the church can be, it's not for everybody. And, and there's a lot of different religions and churches out there, but the, the church can be very, very supportive of yeah. people's recovery programs and people's lives as they go through these as resiliency, but you brought up resiliency and, yeah. and keeping trying, keeping trying, keeping trying. And he hung in there and, and we were able to work with him through that and, and, and all that. So all that to say is, um, that reality of faith can make a big difference in someone's recovery. Yeah, life. it does. And you it, and you highlight a point too, and that is that just because you turn yourself over to Christ, just because you turn yourself over to a program of recovery, mm-hmm. and you're getting well, it doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to go well. Life is life. It just it, the difference is is we are now in that stream of life. Whereas when we're drinking and drugging, we've checked out. We're not. We're not. To, we're not. We're of no use to anyone. Uh, we're not of use to ourselves, but certainly to to other people. And bad things happen. Yeah, you know, just like this this man. You know, it. it I think a lot of times people think that because I've taken this turn in life, then I will have no problems. And that's that's unrealistic. That's, that's not, not the world. That's yeah. not. That's not. We are just going to be better equipped to deal with those problems because that man, had he crawled back into a bottle. He would have been, first of all, it would have created more depression. He was already depressed, obviously. But, folks, alcohol, it sounds like it was alcohol? Alcohol. Uh, it was case, alcohol. Yeah. Is a depressant. Mm-hmm. Alcohol, so you're pouring a depressant on top of your depression, hoping to no longer be depressed. It doesn't work that way. And it makes it worse. And it, it, it's, we are just not equipped to deal with life's problems when we are, are using. Yeah. It's an escape, and, yeah. and you, you nailed it. And and I think that there's an there's an emotional or spiritual skill called distress tolerance. That not that all of us tolerate everything all the time. Not you know we're not super Superman, Superwoman, Iron Man, whatever. But we can develop skills that allow us to face our problems. Mm-hmm. And if a problem is huge, that's what number one community is for because we're not. We're not built to live alone. We're built to live in community with other mm-hmm. people, to be connected, family, friends, people who are supportive. And sometimes our families are crap. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're and, the problem. And, and so, and so <laughs> yeah. we have to, right? And so we have yeah. to, to find our families of choice or those that do support us in another context. And that can be a faith community or some other type of community, mm-hmm. AA or, or, or any number of programs that can be helpful. And so that, you know, it makes a huge difference with 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 those tools of distress tolerance and then we and then breaking down any problem maybe you're facing a problem today that you don't know how you're going to handle it you know let's sit with somebody who can help you think through it and get in your right mind get in your get out of your emotional mind and get into your uh, rational mind and and break down those problems that that somebody can walk with you so you don't have to be alone in your problems Mm -hmm. and instead of drinking escaping forgetting and walking off because it's amazing whenever you sit and you talk to someone about your issues particularly someone that's not emotionally connected to you i.e a spouse uh son daughter um somebody that has an emotional connection to you because that that oftentimes can be the you can get the worst advice from from those people because there's there's going to be baggage oh here we go again oh raise here we go this happens all the time to raise we want somebody that can sit back 
and give you that objective opinion. And when you're in a, a community group and you're, particularly if you're talking to multiple people, and I here's a rule of thumb in life, and that is if multiple people in your life who care about you are telling you the same thing, maybe you should listen to that person. You know, the classic example is, let's say you get a new girlfriend and all of all of your friends are saying, I, you Hopefully know, Ray, not. I've been married for happily for over 30 years. So. <laughs> And me too. But let's say, you know, you're in the market. Let's say Uh you're a kid, right? Uh, Like I I could do this with my own kids, right? And it's happened. You know, all of us that have kids that are of that age where they they start, you know, dating and things like that. And uh, I've run into this with uh, both of my kids where it, you know... I don't know about this one. And uh, what do your friends say? Oh, it's funny. My friends are telling me the same thing. Well, then you know what? If, If your parents and all your friends are telling you the same thing, there might be something there. Might be right? something there. But it's true in these community groups, too, that when we have an issue, that's why we go and we talk to people. And if and if you're getting advice or you're getting guidance from the people around you who care about you, um, and they're all saying the same thing, then maybe, maybe it's worth listening to. But yeah. it's important and, to get that advice. And yeah. it's important to get that advice from people who actually know something about what you're yeah. going through. Because... Mm-hmm. You know, in the Navy, we call them sea lawyers, right? And you know, it it could be somebody that you're your same status, your same rank, and and they really don't know any more than you do. Um, so it's good to talk to somebody senior. It's good to find a mentor. It's good to find like an AA sponsor mm-hmm. that somebody that you can put your trust in and really follow that person's uh, lead because they know more than you. They they've been there, done that, got the teacher. They've experienced it. They've experienced probably. it, and yeah. and lived it out um so important to not just get advice from random people that have no interest in you but people who love you yes and people who are invested in your success and people who know more than you do about whatever you're trying to learn about see and this is important particularly you know we're we just we're in january of 2023 at the recording of this this episode that we're doing today so we've we're kind of getting out of the whole covid lockdown process and i will tell you that i think that the concept that you're talking about is probably in the recovery world probably one of the biggest downfalls of the this this period is because a meeting churches churches and meetings to the large extent were shut down yes Uh, of course i know people are going to say well then we went to zoom and that's a good thing there are some good attributes to zoom and, Mm -hmm. and all these types of meetings but the the one downfall is exactly what you're talking about, and that is that that community. Because I don't care how diligent you are in going to Zoom meetings, there's no way you're getting that personal connection that you're talking about. Because being at an AA meeting or NA meeting is one thing uh, on Zoom. Okay, yes, you're you're learning, you're hearing, but it's that connection, the mentorship, the meeting with the sponsor, face to face, being with another human being that can talk to you about the issues that you're going through and giving you that advice, and then then the community from the room, maybe not just your sponsor, but other people in the room giving you input uh, regarding whatever you're going through. We've lost that, and yeah. there are many people, even in the workplace, you know, many corporations now have not fully gone back to people being in the office and they think okay it's cost savings and there's you know all these other uh, positive attributes i get that but we are really hurt i think emotionally and spiritually by this lack of connection that's just yeah. my opinion yeah we we, we started uh, you know it, where i fellowship but at church we started our men's group back up about six months ago and it is so good to get back together 
and sit with these guys who I've known for you face know, a couple to face. years, yeah. face to face. And, you know, I'm pretty far along in life and my career and everything. But there's there's guys in that group who are 20 years beyond me and they're already fully retired and they do certain things and and are at a certain stage in their life. And they're worried about their great grandkids and all that stuff. And then there are kids and then there are young men there also that are just starting off that I can help out so that it's this progression of learn and then turn around and then teach. And I think that's so important, that flow of not just information, but of life and of relationship and of health. And I think that's uh, so helpful to both the receivers and the ones giving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you have to really go out of your way, particularly these days with what's happened with the world, particularly here in the United States, really get out of yourself and get back to connecting with with people. And it it has to be intentional. Yeah. You have to go out of your way, like you said, and be intentional. Just like our physical, you know, we have to be intentional about what we eat or things that we don't eat or the exercise that we get uh, and the types of exercise. And depending on where you are in your your physical health and your age and, you know, meeting with your doctor. But, you know, we, we have to be intentional about these things in order to make progress. And mm-hmm. one of those is to be honest with ourselves and have other, invite other people to be honest with us about where are we with our program? Mm-hmm. Where are we with our uh, in in our life, and mm-hmm. where are we with our? You know, I I, I have a somebody who helps, who helps me overwatch my finances, and mm-hmm. she's got a long range vision of of where where we where we need to be, mm-hmm. and, and it's something that that my wife and I have latched onto, and yes, we agree with these goals. You've got to have goals, and then you got to have steps to get there. Yeah, and I think, and as far as recovery goes, or it's spiritual development in the larger context of that. Um, it's a it's a great tool. To a, that's a very good point. I mean, we think about it. Not only in recovery do we question the plan mm-hmm. by the the professionals that have been put out in front of us. Um, you know, we're not per- perfect at anything. But you you pointed out you have a financial advisor, and they'll want you to do certain things. Your doctor, I want you to do this. I want you to change your diet. I want you to increase your exercise, and you can choose to do that or not. But most of us will at least make an attempt to do that. But in recovery, not uncommon for us to give a plan, which we developed with the patient, by the way. Absolutely. And then what happens? They, when they show up a week later, what happened? Well, I didn't do the, you know, did you do the things that we talked about? No, I didn't do it. There's something about recovery. There's this stubbornness about, uh, that people have when it comes to recovery that they somehow know better. And I think that that's maybe, and maybe get you to elaborate on this, you know, particularly in your pastoral work, because you probably see it in areas beyond addiction. And that is this idea that I hear this all the time from patients. Um, well, let me tell you, Mike, what I prefer to do. Let me tell you what my plan, let me tell you what I've always done. And of course, the way I look at it is, but what you've always done keeps bringing you back here. You know, what is it, Ray, that you think that Or that you end up people, in the gutter in, in your own vomit, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Like, a, like, like we, we were talking about before we well. came on here that, yeah. you know, we find the patient. No names. <laughs> well, it's it's a lot of people. And sure. I, <laughs> maybe I was in that situation where on Friday we find you in, in, a, in a ditch in your own vomit and urine. And by Monday morning, I'm lecturing you on how I do things and questioning God, questioning the science questioning all these different things and then when your methods haven't worked at all no my methods well you did find me on friday night in the ditch and so here i am um wondering why this isn't working for me what is it about people that 
How do we tap into that? How do we get people to realize, hey, you might want to listen? I think there's two things. First of all, drugs and alcohol, which alcohol is a drug anyway, and we Mm -hmm. we can talk about spirits and spiritual influence as well. Um, Because that's what we talk about. Alcohol is a spirit. You it's know, called that. You know, wine you, and you spirits. You go by the store and it will say wine and spirits. spirits right? right. Yeah. So, yeah, the, and, the, and those are very harmful things. Those are not effective behaviors, just to put it mildly. Um, so I think people's judgment gets, I mean, the patterns in their brains. I'm, I'm not a neurologist, not a doctor, my disclaimer. But the patterns in their brains and their thinking get, get out of whack. And they're not able to see themselves for who they really are. Um, and, you know, and, and the second thing is just the human pride of nobody's going to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see a lot of that. And, and you know, and, and physicians, I know, even if it's diet, exercise, those kinds of simple things, you know, you know, I hear doctors talk, well, I, you know, I told her what to do. I told him what to do to lose X number of pounds or to get healthier, to get off these certain kinds of medications and but they'll never do it you know and, and it's those kinds of prideful kinds of stubborn things and people will uh drink themselves or and and eat themselves into an early grave mm-hmm. and understand that they're doing it and leave their loved ones in the lurch because they're at the center of themselves and they like that they've gotten used to that and they feel that they are the experts yeah. in themselves. Now, and let me caveat that with when I talk to people, because it, it's a it's a fine balance, particularly when we're talking about recovery. Recovery is, and we talked about this before, right? The people that tend to relapse do certain things. The people that get well tend to do certain things. But it's like within a sphere. Everybody's recovery program is the same, and it's different all at one time. And I think that part of it, part of that journey, is figuring out how you think. My particular recovery program would probably look different than your recovery program, but there would be certain things that the both of us do. Which starts with not picking up a drink, not picking up a drug. But... In those ways, I I come from a military police background. You come from a military background. And so what I found in my early recovery that worked for me, putting in that structure, like, you know, in my drinking, at the height of my drinking days, I had had been a very, very disciplined person, military person, had been a pilot, all those kinds of things. But as I started to drink, all those things started to slip away. And whereas my life was really just not manageable and, and it, my life had become a bit unrecognizable from what it had been. Hmm. Okay. But I knew how it had been. And I knew that back in my structured days, militant or military days, if you want to look at it, that I had gained a modicum of success in living my life that way, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, those types of things. And so what I, that last run, this run in recovery, I decided early on that that's what I was going to do. I'm going to, and I used the term. I remember telling my wife, I'm going to go militant with my recovery. I was going to become very, very structured, went to work, worked out, went to meetings, sometimes three meetings a day. I was going to read that first year. I only read recovery literature. If I read something, it was recovery related or spiritual, spirituality related. Yeah. But that was it. Nothing else. 
the holidays. Didn't have anybody over. We didn't go to their place. It was just me and my family. Ironically, probably the best holiday season we'd ever had because there was no drama. It was just us. My kids even commented recently about how those were some of the best Christmases that we had, particularly that first one. But that's what I had to do. And as I told you before we came on this program, I picked a sponsor that was really old school AA, and he was mil- and not so nice about it. If I did something stupid or wrong, he was not so nice in how he pointed that out to me. But that worked for me. Yeah. But that was the plan. Mm-hmm. And I stuck with that plan. And shockingly, here I am a, a, over a decade later, yeah. not having had a drink. And you're still working it. Still working it. Um, we still never stop working it. it. Right. It, it's it's always, and that, and that's the beautiful we part take of, what works. of recovery is we keep, there's no end to getting healthier. Right. Right. I mean, we get older, but... Which makes it hard, which yeah. means that we should be even more disciplined. Absolutely. Right? Not less. Correct. And and that's one of the things about recovery, and, and, I, and I like it, and I'll get you to elaborate on this, is one of the things that the people that have been in recovery for a while, and I, and I said that they tend to do certain things. One of those things that they tend to do, and I actually don't know of any exceptions to this, is they work their program of recovery 30 years just as hard as they did in the first year. They don't let up on that. Whenever you hear somebody say, I'm a recovered alcoholic or I'm a recovered drug addict, I call that out. You are not recovered. You are recovering. You're a recovering alcoholic, but you're not recovered because that ED is past tense. Right. There's no past. It is present tense. You're working it. And I have to work my program. My, my program looks different today than mm-hmm. it did the first year, but it is still a program and I still stick to it. Yes. And I think that that's what it is, is that, the, like, like you talked about, finding that program and sticking with that program. But whatever that program is, it, you need to do it. Yeah, you got to do what, gotta do what it. works. Right. Uh, your, your approach is more militant. You know, other, others that I've worked with, uh, a little more, not flexibility in terms of not picking up a drink or not picking up a drug, but more focused on uh, spiritual growth and delving into uh, religious literature accountability in terms of that um, celebrate recovery is one of those other programs yep, yep. That, that is faith-based that that works for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and and what I wanted to get into a little bit was um, we we have a lot of people probably listening who are who would consider themselves spiritual beings but not particularly religious and if I were to draw a Venn diagram of two circles there would be an overlap port part there mm-hmm. of of spirituality and religion and religious practices and I, I think uh, what I found in, in, in working with um, addicts to some extent, and, and you have more experience than I do with that, but is that uh, religious practices can be very helpful. Um, prayers, historic kinds of things that have worked for, to help people develop their spirituality and their spiritual strength um, and their groundedness and their rootedness in the eternal uh, for thousands of years through various faith mm-hmm. traditions. Um, and so why throw out what works, right? Um, and I would say religious practices devoid of that meaningful, benevolent kind of understanding of, of your high, higher power is, can be controlling, uh, can, be, mm-hmm. can become a compulsion in and of itself. And I'm not saying it is, but some people switch, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do it, but some people leave, leave the bottle, pick up the Bible and compulsively 
just use the Bible for that replacement. And I'm not saying that that's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. There's a lot of good things about that. Um, am I making sense here? Yeah. You know, as yeah. far as the compulsion of the religious practices. And at the same time, if we develop that spirituality through those religious practices and that spirituality becomes alive and vital and the relationship with the divine becomes uh, real to us, I think that is a positive driving force, not just in society and all through humanity and history, but also in our personal lives Mm -hmm. so that that faith becomes real and vibrant and wonderful in people's lives. And I think that's what, what... with the with the good spirit, right? The Holy mm-hmm. Spirit would have us do because we we are inward, but we're also outward facing. Yeah. Whereas with addiction, we're only inward, inward. facing. Mm-hmm. And like when you talk about those compulsions, it is not uncommon for people that come into recovery take that compulsion and then move into another compulsion. And I've had I've had mm-hmm. patients ask me. They say, "Well, you know, Mike, I've noticed that uh, people in recovery drink a lot of coffee. I mean, aren't you worried about that?" that that's going to be a problem or i've noticed that my smoking has taken up or my eating has taken or exercise that's another one a lot of people oh uh, yeah um you know when you get into when you look at the ultra endurance athletics uh iron man triathlon ultra marathoning or marathoning not uncommon to find people a lot of people in recovery there's actually a, a number of professional um triathletes that are people in re- recovery which is a great thing so patients have asked me well but isn't that a problem and and I want people to think about this, that it may be, maybe not. Here's here's sort of the, the litmus test to that. Mm-hmm. If whatever you are doing becomes a problem in your primary relationships, that being work and family, if it is becoming a problem for them, then by definition, it's a problem for you. Now, um, I will say that when it comes to coffee, I've never met anyone that had a boss come to them and say, you know something, Ray? Uh, notice you had three cups of coffee this morning. If you pick up a fourth one, I'm going to have to let you go, Ray. I've never heard that that conversation. No. Or, um, and, but I do know people who have made trips to the ER because they drank too much coffee and it affected their physical system. Yeah. And, and that would be another issue. Emergency room. Yeah. Now, if you get to that point where I had a guy, that's actually, a problem. I actually had a guy. I actually had a, and you're, and you're right. Yeah. We can, and, but and I don't think anybody's going to the ER because they read, the, you know, uh, holy scriptures or no, no, or no, holy no. Books and and that much. can happen, but that's going to be a lot of coffee if, yeah, you, yeah, if you're yeah. drinking that. True. But it's, in other words, it's it's in early recovery. It's funny because they they will come out of a 28 day treatment center and then all of a sudden their their issue is, hey, I'm worried about drinking too much coffee. Well, let's deal with that when we get down the road. I had a guy one time <laughs> nice. say to me. He goes, now we're talking about a guy that was uh, obese. I mean, I, clinically, you know, obese, no exercise at all. And he says to me, we, he and I were talking about the advantages to diet and exercise. And again, like a, a lot of addicts, it is. But you know, Mike, I know that that can become a problem. I mean, you know, if I get to the point to where, you know, I'm working out so much, you know, my wife might leave me. And I'm, and I, and I remember saying to the guy, you know, your, your wife's problem is you're drinking right now. And I'm kind of looking at you, and I'm thinking that we might be at a little while off before. I mean, you're not exactly. You might be about 100 pounds away from uh, all that. Right? You know, I, yeah. I tell you what, when you, when, when you get mm-hmm. to the point to where you're you're running three hours a day, and you're spending half the day riding your bike, and, and you're doing so many Ironman triathlons per year that your wife has left you. Let's talk about it. I don't think that that's an immediate issue yeah. right now. Yeah. I don't think that that's. And, and like, I really appreciate what you just 
what you said about the litmus test of yeah. is it affecting your yeah your your immediate relationships are people coming to you who love you and saying hey you're doing too much of that or why don't yeah. you do this and if you get to the point like you yeah. you've been drinking and drugging the mm-hmm. way problematically to the point where you need to go to a treatment center and then later if you and because don't get me wrong there there are patients that were very physically fit going into treatment i when i went into treatment i was probably in that category and then you get well, out of course you were oh, of oh. course just look at me right um you know when when you get out and if you it gets to the point to where your wife says Johnny's got um, a soccer game on Friday night. Well, I I can't because my training plan says I got to do my sixteen mile run. And okay, well you know Johnny's got soccer tomorrow. Well, I can't because that's my you know I got a bike for three hours. And well, what about Sunday? Well, that's my pool. So, you know, and if you get to the point to where you're missing out on all of those uh, life events because of some other obsession that you you've picked up then we want to have a discussion about that because we didn't stop drinking and drugging to turn around and be just as absent doing something else. Because I remember talking to one particular patient and I said, um, you know, are you, are you getting, are you a professional athlete? I mean, are there sponsors that are paying you? Is your living dependent upon you doing these bike rides and runs? And, and of course the answer to that was no, this is a middle-aged guy, you know, just kind of doing it. I'm like, so you're missing out, you know, your wife is upset and your kids are missing out because you've picked up a new obsession and a new hobby, but nobody's paying you to do this. Yeah. Right. You're not in the, like, I understand you're gone half the year because you're in the Navy or on deployment, but that's not what's going on here. You now, your wife is looking at this. You are choosing to go do a 40 mile bike ride as opposed to going to the soccer game. That's different. And we need to have a discussion about that. But again, the litmus test, how is it affecting your primary relationships? Now, if you're single and you don't have kids or maybe the kids are out of the house and your thing is you want to go out and train three or four or five hours a day and it's literally not affecting anyone else or your job, then knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. But, but, but that's something that you need to decide and do that with the people around you. Is this something I'd like to do this, but how is it affecting those around me? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's so true. And mm-hmm. I think the the benefit of religious practice and the development of spirituality. Like I said, when when we first started, when somebody starts into their addiction, all the other development stops. It's like yeah. all the bandwidth, all the energy of your development, your, your moral development, your moral compass, your spirituality, everything. I mean, you'll steal from your grandmother, mm-hmm. right? Um, not you, but you know, addicts, <laughs> yeah. addicts will steal. Oh, yeah. They will yeah. lie incessantly. They lie so much. They don't even know they're lying. Um, and to change all those practices without assistance, without support of a community, without the sense of development and spirituality and, and without their heart changing is, I, I can't imagine doing it. And it's being a successful. fundamental change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. And that gets back to that radical root yeah. of changing that time, speed, distance course that people get on. We've got to adjust. When you meet people in long-term recovery, and I'll do this with, with guys I'm sponsoring that are new, and I'll have them look around the room. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask them, we'll do an exercise. I'll say, I want you to tell me who's new and you know who's been sober for a while. And without even getting into the difference between not drinking and being sober, those are two different things. And oftentimes, you know, people will tell me, they'll, they'll pick out the people and, and they'll be 
pretty accurate about it. And, but I'll ask him, you know, why, why, why is that? Why is, why is it that you say so-and-so has been sober for a while and so-and-so is not? Why do you say that? And they'll say there's just something about Ray or whoever. There's just something about them. And what they're pointing out is they recognize that there is that tran- there's that inner transformation that took place. Mm-hmm. It is an inner transformation that has taken place with somebody in recovery. It's a spiritual transformation. It's an awakening. It's being aware of that next level, that fourth, actually the big book actually talks about the fourth dimension that you didn't even know existed, but somehow you tapped into it. That's what we're talking about. And you know it. You can't maybe articulate it, but you know it when you see it. Yeah. You know it when you see it. Mm -hmm. And even the new people in recovery can see it in Mm -hmm. others. Yeah, now, now addicts and abuse victims, others too, but those two categories, have, a, have an uncanny sense of how to tell about people mm-hmm. because they've developed it to survive. It's a survival mode. Of they need to know when someone's going to go home or come home, walk through the door, and kick them across the room. Mm-hmm. They need to have that immediate sense of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, where was I going with that? Where I was going with it was, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an innate people sense, and spirituality I think is a big part of that, and that could be what they're what they're sensing in the mm-hmm. room from other people, because I think we give off, we do in our hearts and our minds and how we connect with people, how we love ourselves, truly love ourselves, and how we love the world around us, and you know what. Um, you know, one of my favorite scriptures, Christian scriptures, is 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 uh, you know, love love your neighbor as you love yourself, and that is, uh, you know, love God, love other people, love love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself as we love ourselves. And in that in that loving ourselves is we love our neighbors in the same quality or in the same quantity in the same intensity as we love ourselves. So self love is not evil in and of itself. But it has a quality of expansion to the community mm-hmm. that we're part of as we care about people who love us. And Jesus says, love your enemies. So it expands even to those who may want to do us harm. doesn't mean we're best buddies with them or hang out or whatever. But, you know, the sense of loving ourselves, loving others, and then loving God goes in that that order because people coming into recovery often have there is a self-loathing loathing yeah. at that point there is and it's really hard the when guilt, you are loathing shame. yourself to help other it's really almost impossible for you to love anyone else mm-hmm. if it doesn't start here yeah if it doesn't start here then it, it well the guilt you know. the shame and and, it, yeah. and it's so painful that's why people climb back in the bottle again because mm-hmm. they feel they can't they can't succeed and they just give up and it's just easier to crack open the next brew or mm-hmm. whatever to check out yeah because it's escape. That's what it is. Sure. is you, you don't want to be here. So mm-hmm. you, you want to escape to, to get somewhere else. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, that's that. So great conversation. So what are you, what's sort of in store for you and maybe a final message to the, the listeners? What, what's the sort of like that key takeaway that you'd like for people to have from here on out? I think a key takeaway for me that I invite your listeners to consider is that the sense of faith, the sense of spiritual growth and spiritual ability to connect with yourself and to connect with the divine can be a definitely helpful part of your 
recovery process. And recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. And we can't do it alone. Yes, we need others. We need sponsors. We need whatever program works for you. And to be honest with yourself, realizing that the shame, the guilt, all those things that we can soak ourselves in uh, when we're when we're acting out, when we're misbehaving, if you would, really is a sense of God calling us back of, I love you. I can help you through this. Be real. Be authentic with me because God knows all anyway. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing that can be hidden. And like you shared your little story of, of being overseas, you know, all of us have been in situations where we could choose to do not good things, not helpful things. And yet we, we choose correctly. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes we don't choose correctly. And God knows that too. But God is merciful and kind and always calls us back to, uh, God, to God's self. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always so important. So if, if we grew up in a hyper-religious home where there was a lot of um, guilt and shame and condemnation for bad behavior, uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater just yet. Um, look at the structure that was there. Engage the good parts that are helpful, that are hopeful, that, that really grow your spirituality. And then take that next step. Mm-hmm. Talk to somebody, connect on that. And, and, and have that discussion with people who love you and who you love as Maybe I'm t- going to take that next step of faith. Yeah. And what's the next steps for you? Uh, you retired from the Navy. Yeah. You still retired. kind of in, um, in the process. I retired 13 out. days ago, actually. January 1st was my first day of <laughs> retirement. Right. So happy new year to me. Um, <laughs> so we're still figuring out all this stuff out. Uh, I'm connected to the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel or, or Foursquare Churches, which is a uh, group of about 2,000 churches here th- throughout the United States. I'm going to be, uh, looks like the uh, assistant endorsing agent, which is a technical term to say those people who want to become chaplains in the military or the Veterans Administration uh, can go can come through Foursquare Chaplains International and and be certified as a chaplain. There's all kinds of qualifications to that. So I'm helping out with that process of taking people who are Foursquare pastors and looking at their possibility of, of becoming a chaplain and serving the larger community in that sense. Uh, there's also a, a corporate chaplain group that, that I'm looking at becoming part of and then working in healthcare chaplaincy, which after working at uh, Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, helping out with the VA Medical Center, uh, coming up here to Walter Reed. And we didn't even discuss the Wounded Warrior uh, experience uh, at Walter Reed. I will tell you that the most humbling experience of my life is being at the receiving area of, of Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and seeing, meeting the parents, meeting the next of kin, talking to, through them about what's what they're going to see. And then at 11, 12 midnight, whenever the, we called it the bus, whenever the, the bus ambulance would come from their loved ones overseas mm-hmm. and they would see their parents for the first time or their spouse for the first time, it just, it never ceased to bring tears to my eyes. And I can just picture moms and dads rushing up to mm. the bedside of their loved ones coming off that and they may be missing an arm missing leg missing multiple limbs uh definitely packed in with with ice definitely packed in with those um 
life-saving machines around them that are helping them at that point to breathe, but they're actually coming off the medevac flights, putting on the buses and being transported from their landing site into Walter Reed for that initial uh, assessment. You can't keep those parents away. You just yeah. you just connect them, love them. It's, yeah. It was such a humbling experience. Our Navy medicine, Army medicine, uh, do a fantastic job. Uh, performed, I, I would say, miracles with so many of them. Yeah. Not everybody turns out well, but right. uh, so much. That's got to be tough on you. It was. It, it was really such tough. an honor. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if I think it was tough on me, it was especially tough on the parents yeah. and, and the wounded. Um, and yet, talk about community and recovery, so much beautiful connection happens as the family comes together around that wounded warrior, as the wounded warrior takes center stage and, and rightly so, yeah. uh, absorbs a lot of attention and a lot of care from, uh, from the nation, from the hospital that they're in and some of them go directly to Brook Army Medical Center and the burn unit and mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, I'm talking, my experience is 10 years old now. Mm -hmm. So at, this is at the height of, uh, of the war in on. Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq. So I, it was, it's just a humbling experience. I'll never forget that. Wow. Wow. It's really cool. That's Such good. And I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll have to do another program where we, we kind of delve into that a bit more. A bit more, but uh, well, thanks. Thank you for your service. I was uh, just so everybody knows. I was at Ray's uh, retirement ceremony. Beautiful ceremony. It's been a sure. while. I've not, <laughs> I've not been to a military retirement in quite a while, particularly a Navy one. And uh, it was good to see. Had not experienced. I, 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 every time I see stuff like that, I miss the military. I really do. The the military. If you think of my entire career, the military was uh, probably the smallest part of my career, even though I was in in for eight years. Um, but it was probably the most impactful part of my career. And there's just something about the military, yeah. the community, you just don't get, even in the police force and in the FBI where I was, it's just not as tight. It just it just isn't. And it was great to see everybody there and, and hear about your career, hear other people talk about your career. Well, yeah, it was made great. well. Yeah, it was good. It was good. <laughs> well, I mean, what started off on my trajectory and my personal journey and my spiritual journey was, you know, I was raised in a wonderful home. Uh, went to church and all that, but it didn't become real to me until I really needed God when I was going through Marine Corps boot camp mm -hmm. at Paris Island, South Carolina, in back in the eighties, and it was it was tough. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's still tough, and just the sense of of God watching over me, protecting me, protecting those I was working with, and then volunteering to help out with the chaplains. I got to see what they do, and in my ignorance, I asked our do you guys get paid for this? Because I saw them having just too much fun. And they're like, oh yeah, actually I'm a lieutenant in the Navy and explained the career path and and the doors opened and you know did what I needed to do as far as my degrees and education and everything. But it was really, to your point, it was really those you know first couple of years as a young enlisted Marine, age 18, 19, 20, that really set my pathway yeah. to a military career. Those are those small changes that have big effects down the road. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It it was good. The military was good to me. Yeah. So. Well, guys, I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time to come back here and do this uh, interview. And we've got to do it again. And I want to have your wife on, who who's a counselor as well. Oh, she's yeah. got great stories. <laughs> no attribution, no names. Um, in fact, she told me, it's, I, again, I don't know who it is, but yeah. uh, 
you have some listeners that are clients of hers. Ah, so, yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. how many, but hello out there. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I look, I'm looking forward to doing that. And you're listening. Yeah, thank you so much for doing that. Appreciate your support. But it's really just us getting the message out, trying to help people to get well. So, Ray Halk, thank you for, again for coming on the podcast. And, guys, we will see you uh, next time. This is uh, Mike Van Meter with Ray Halk, and this is Recovery is Possible. And we are going to be seeing you guys soon. It's New Year, January, almost halfway through. But we got a lot of big episodes coming up, so look forward to talking with you soon. Bye-bye.